Hello, and welcome to PRISM. PRISM is a design-oriented podcast hosted by me, Dan Hardin. Like a glass prism that reveals the color hidden inside white light, this podcast will reveal the inside story behind innovation, especially the people that make it happen. My aim is to uncover each guest's unique point of view, their insights, their methods, or their own secret motivator, perhaps, that fuels their creative genius. Today, I have the pleasure of being with a good old friend of mine, Barry Cates. Barry is the Professor of Industrial Design and Interaction Design at the California College of the Arts, an adjunct professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering Design Group at Stanford University. Barry was also, uh, well, Barry's been working with IDEO for the last 20 years as a fellow and general advisor. Uh, We're going to hear a little bit about his experience there. Um, He's also the author of seven books, including most recently, Make It New, The History of Silicon Valley Design, published in 2017 by MIT Press. And Barry's also working on a great new book called Structure and Symbol for the Age of Data, uh, which is about architecture in the Silicon Valley. Uh, Barry, thanks so much for coming on, Prism. Glad to Um, be here. I always love talking to you. Um, you are a gem of a human, uh, the f- and the, the, you know you you pretty much blew me away when you were one of the keynote speakers at a conference that I chaired back in 2002, as you remember well. So I do. Uh, this is a really great experience. Um, so, you know, you wrote this book that I read uh, because, well, I'm living in the Silicon Valley. I've been a designer in the Silicon Valley since 1989 and had experience working here even prior to that. So I was really fascinated by your perspectives on the history of design in the Bay Area. Maybe we could start by you giving us a, a general context, because my first exposure to the Bay Area was when I was seeing this extraordinary work being done um, yeah, I would say in the early 80s. Um, and I actually interned at HP, which was my first exposure around that time. But what was happening before that? How did we get to that point of inflection yep. where design started to become relevant to technology? Maybe we could start yep. unpacking a little bit of that that kind of historical perspective because it, it sets the framework so well for what actually happen and how design flourished uh so let's um uh uh begin a little bit with um what got me interested in taking a long historical look at how people like you ended up doing what people like you are now doing in uh 2021 um i was struck by um a small gift sent to me by a mutual friend of ours. I'm sure you know Gerard Furbershaw, one of the co-founders of Lunar, one of the uh, distinguished consultancies of the area. Gerard sent me a clipping um, from a 1979 Palo Alto telephone book, The Yellow Pages. And I apologize to readers uh, or viewers or listeners who have no idea what The Yellow Pages are. business directory for these things that we used to call telephones. Um, and this was uh, a page from the, um, the business directory that listed every design consultancy in Northern California, 1979. There were, uh, if I remember correctly, nine of them, and they were squeezed between detective agencies and diaper services. 
and of the nine, um, only one of them still exists, although no, not under the same name. In other words, uh, design was absolutely not on the map as uh, any significant part of what was important about this region. And the reason that that was interesting to me is today, I think I'd be prepared to argue that there are probably more design professionals working within 50 miles of where you and I are sitting right now than anywhere else in the world. So I got interested in the question, how did that happen? How did that Mm -hmm. happen in um, uh, an extraordinarily, you know, basically in a generation? Um, If you had asked almost anybody in... um, Uh, that period, the late 70s, the early 80s, what are the important world centers of design? I think that there would have been a pretty easy consensus. And, you know, Dan, you could could say it too. Milan for furniture, Paris for fashion, New York for graphics, London probably for product design, maybe Tokyo for electronics, Mm -hmm. um, LA for whatever they do down there. I have no idea. Um, And if you had said yeah, uh, the Bay Area, um, I think you would have been met with a blank stare. Right. Uh, one of the um, older folks that I interviewed in my book who, who migrated out here for romantic reasons, I think he had to get away from um, uh, a second wife or something like that, uh, <laughs> and tried to set up shop in San Francisco as an industrial designer in the late 60s, I think. And he said... Um, Anybody who would try to do that then should have his head examined. There was no client base. There were no colleagues. There was no system of suppliers and partners. Um, it was an island. And now um, it's it's become the center. So I wanted to figure out how that happened. Uh, and I started uh, scratching around the early 80s when the big consultancies began to form. IDEO, Lunar, Frog, where you uh, you and I first met. Mm-hmm. And I scratched a little bit further and I found some activity um, in the, um, uh, the decade prior to that. And I scratched a little bit further and I found um, a few big companies that had an industrial designer on staff. And I kept scratching until I got back to, um, I think it was... Um, uh, August 7, 1951, <laughs> when Hewlett-Packard hired its first, quote-unquote, uh, industrial designer. Wow. Uh, and they gave him the assignment that I, I heard from any number of people that I spoke to. It was essentially, can you stuff five pounds of shit into a 10-pound box? Uh, mm-hmm. That was a phrase that kept kept coming up. Or maybe it was 10 pounds into I've, I've forgotten. So there were... Um, uh, there was some early stirring of activity in the post-World War II period. Uh, this is the time when Silicon Valley was just beginning to emerge as an important tech center in electronics, in aviation, and in defense. And a few companies, Hewlett-Packard, um, Lockheed, interestingly enough, and uh, a company that is now almost defunct, uh, Ampex, which was at one time the pioneer in audio recording. They essentially invented magnetic tape recording. Mm-hmm. Um, they had small design groups, and that was about it. Um, their The primary role of designers then was to package technology, to put the work of engineers into a suitable enclosure uh, that wouldn't offend anybody. Um, and... Um, 
uh, that wouldn't get into the in the way of having the things function. And then gradually, uh, what I described is uh, an, an expanding perimeter around uh, the areas that designers could involve themselves in. And I think that I would say that the crucial moment in time, uh, kind of metaphorically speaking, is when computing started to get small enough, cheap enough, and fast enough that it began to move from the back rooms of large organizations onto the desktops of ordinary consumers. Mm -hmm. And that's where design is really in a position to add major value. Because people were used to consuming well-designed products and other parts of their life and Maybe computers well, partly, really didn't have an identity yet, right? I mean, and no, that's not what at I all. Remember. I mean, the, the computer was this inscrutable refrigerator-sized machine in the back room of a bank or an airline or an insurance company or the defense department. There was Please. one guy you might remember, Elliot Noyes, on the East Coast oh, sure. as he designed those giant IBM computers. That was the first exposure yep. that I saw to computers yep. being designed, and then I was also seeing. Around that same time frame, some amazing work done by Mario Bellini and Atori Satsas when yes. they were designing like pre-computers for Olivetti. You know, these were uh, yeah. teletype machines and adding machines. Really cool stuff. I mean, they were giving yeah. Yeah. true art yeah. and form to these devices that otherwise had no kind of functional bearing on anything we would understand. Unlike, say, uh, a mixer or a fan where there were required yep. components, uh, mechanical components, whereas these devices, even those early tech devices, they, you know, they were early transistor based products. And, you know, what, sure. what should they look like? What should a key look like? Even that you press a button on, you know, in a series yep. of keys, should it look like a typewriter? Probably. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah, those were well, really I'm, interesting transitional days. I'm, re I'm really glad that you said that and that you put it in the way that you did, Dan, because, um, Everybody knows what a mixer does. Everybody knows what a hairdryer does. Everybody knows what a desk lamp does. Nobody in this period, and again, you know, to the, the 1970s, nobody really knew what a computer was and what it was for. And as you look at the, the proliferation of small companies that were exploring this terra incognita of personal computing... The big debate was, what is the machine? Is it a really, really fast typewriter? Is it a really, really powerful adding machine? Is it some kind of a communications device? And it was really uncertain. Um, and, you know, now uh, it's familiar to practically everybody, and we use it for all of those things, and probably also if it's a hairdryer and a mixer and a desk lamp. Mm -hmm. um, but it was... Um, uh, a technology in search of a definition of, uh, of a category. So what, what I think is really crucial here is that when Elliot Noyes and some of the folks that you mentioned were designing, uh, and I say designing uh, sort of cautiously, they're doing the industrial design of large-scale business machines, um, uh, I don't want to put it too crudely, but engineers are not that concerned with the experience of um, <laughs> right. the device that they're working on. Okay. I say this with no disrespect, you know, in a way they have higher um, uh, aspirations, but when a technology moves from the business world into the consumer market, 
functionality tends to be displaced by experience. I know that's a little bit Indeed. of a cliche, but you're mm-hmm. less concerned with um, the inner workings and how the thing works and more concerned, not simply with superficial ex- uh, aesthetics, but with the experience that you're having in using the device or the product or the software. And that is the point where design really comes into the picture as something more than uh, what you're so familiar with, the Henry Dreyfus or the Elliott Noise model mm-hmm. of form and function um, of using industrial design to make something more uh, attractive and, and accessible. I think part of that is that consumers have an expectation that whatever purpose this new product that is being proposed for them to purchase, whatever that purpose is, you want it delivered to you quickly. We have mm-hmm. impatient minds, right? We want that design mm-hmm. to deliver. And so it's got to stimulate me in the way that it looks. It has to communicate to me in an intuitive manner, and then it has to deliver on its functionality. Scientists or researchers that were using those giant computers back then, they didn't have that expectation. No. That, it, was, it, it was purely functional, although mm-hmm. remarkably, even companies like IBM realized wait a minute, there's there's yeah. a culture in this technology. We need to represent it. Not, I don't think they were necessarily trying to sell more computers with design. You know, back then, I think yeah. they were proud of what they were doing. And they, they, were, they wanted to kind of show off. They're like, hey, you know what? These are remarkable machines. Let's, let's do this right. Let's build some culture and maybe even yeah. a sense of art in what they were building. Mm-hmm. I'm also really glad that you um, you mentioned some of the European companies that were um, kind of pioneering this sort of thinking. You know, Olivetti created a, a machine called the Performa, uh, which some people have argued is really the first desktop computer, and had a comprehensive corporate-wide design strategy, um, as did Philips, a small number of other European companies. And they had a, if I am not mistaken, they had a tremendous uh, influence on your generation of American designers. So at exactly the moment that we were trying to figure out what is this new thing uh, that we're dealing with, and we're still trying to figure that out, you know, 40 years into the story of computing, um, uh, people were, uh, to a large extent, taking their cues from some of the radical uh, solutions being proposed in Europe and gradually uh, incorporating them into uh, their thinking. Apple's the um, the clear example. That's how Apple really got started. Indeed. So, you know, but before we talk about Apple, because, I mean, uh, they're, they're the monolith here, right? And so in, in, sure. the, um, in the space of design and technology, when I was in, when I was in school, I remember it so well, the like the very top the paragon of like design for me was the work that was being done by Olivetti there was something about mm-hmm. those expressions i i felt that they were they were beyond product to me they were they were something truly extraordinary they they touched the the abyss in some way that just made me think as a designer wow i can do anything mm-hmm. as a designer because they're really prior to the existence of this early technology, there was no reference. There was no vernacular for what technology should look like, right? So unlike if you're designing a chair, you know, how many thousands of years do we need to go back to 
to see the vernacular of a chair. So that compelled me to uh, it pushed myself. And I was desi- designing, even in school, it's hilarious. I was doing like Olivetti-esque kind of things. I was just so influenced yeah. by that. I really loved yeah. that, that technology. And that's what led me to want to even work for HP back then. You'll find this interesting because you, you teach at Stanford. I went to this Stanford design conference and the sure. speaker was this young man that was the CEO and founder of this new computer company called Apple, and they had just gone public. Mm. And there was Steve Jobs up on stage pontificating about technology, and he was using the word design. I was like in the, you know, the back of the audience. Hey, design? Did he just yeah. say design? You know, as I was super excited about that, and at lunchtime, I'll never forget this. We all got our cafeteria trays during this conference. Steve Jobs came out of, we're all sitting outside. He looked around the the lawn and I guess he selected the youngest group or something. I was sitting among like eight of my peers at HP and he came and he chose us to sit down next to. He sat down, took his shoes off, of course, right? He was famous for being barefoot, barefoot all the time in his younger days. And he just, I wish I could say we had a discussion, but no, he pretty much continued to talk at us about technology and design, the importance of design, I realized mm-hmm. I, I had a sense, although I didn't have the, the knowledge or the foresight necessarily to know where this was all going to go, but yeah. I believed that he truly felt a sense about the, the importance of design, especially, and its incorporation into product. And yeah. It, I think it catapulted me even farther in my own personal thinking about like, man, I've got to, I have to do some killer work here at HP and, I, and I'm really intrigued by this notion of technology and design. Years later, I worked with him, yeah. but um, that to me was kind of the turning point. You mentioned a turning point in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, his emergence as, um, or Apple's emergence as a force, especially when he hired Frog Design during yeah. that time period in the early 80s, um, that to me was the seminal moment. Um, let's talk about that because everything, you know, when you mentioned a few of the companies that were considering and hiring one or two designers in the Bay Area at that time, here's a, here's a company, a new technology company, a young, exciting, brash company. Apple that reaches out to design firms in the world. So he finds this company in Germany in in the Black Forest. Right, Frog yeah. was in Alt, Altensteig. Right, it was this, yeah, yeah. It's a super <laughs> cute little tiny village in the Black Forest. Now, how he actually found them, I, I've heard stories about it. You know, when I was there, but um, that is an extraordinary time period. I remember sure. one other point, and I wanted your perspective on this. Right after my internship I, at HP, I ended up graduating and going to Europe with a portfolio on my back. And one of the companies that I went down to have an informational interview was Frog Design. And the founder of Frog Design, Hartmut Esslinger, interviewed me. And at the time, he said, uh, this is like 1982, he said, um, mm-hmm. Dan, we just met this crazy guy in the Silicon Valley named Steve Jobs. 
do you, have you heard about him? Do you know much about him? I'm like, oh, well, I just, I just heard him at this, this yeah. Stanford design conference. So yeah, I know him, you know, quote unquote. And I'll never forget that moment because he said, we're thinking about doing some work with him. And uh, what, do, what do you think? And, you know, would you eventually like to come help on this? We really like your portfolio. Could you come help us in California? I thought, wow, this is this firm in this in the Black Forest is willing to make this leap across continents to go design for this crazy guy named Steve Jobs. And I hope you told Hardman to make sure that he got paid in advance. (laughs) I don't think he had any problem getting paid. By Apple at that time, um, it, you know, that became legendary how much of a retainer they got, you know, to design these products yeah. at that time. But there were all kinds of things happening, not only, you know, Apple with with Frog, but another gentleman named Bill Mogridge comes over. Tell us about that and and your perspective yeah. on this, this shift. The big shift was this, in my opinion, was kind of that this Euro invasion into the Silicon Valley when a lot of industrial designers from Europe keyed onto the fact that there's something interesting going on here in technology in the Silicon Valley and they wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, I think it really has to be understood as a global phenomenon as part of a global wave and we're still in it. Um, And the wave is now um, moving back and forth across the Pacific, just as um, 40 years ago, it was moving back and forth across the Atlantic, mostly forth, I would say. Um, uh, Apple is a key player in the story. I don't want to romanticize it, but I would never want to minimize it either. Um, I mean, I I will often say, would you have bought... um, a computer from a company founded on April Fool's Day and named after a piece of fruit. And <laughs> when I said, you know, make sure you should have told Hartman to make sure he got paid in advance. Um, I personally know, and I think you know a couple of these folks too, Dan, uh, but I personally know three people that uh, were approached by Steve Jobs in the late 70s and turned him down. Here's another guy, another one of these guys mm-hmm. uh, in jeans and barefoot or you know, his Birkenstocks, um, with his vision of something or other. Um, And if I'll just do the work on spec, um, the gold will come pouring into my checking account. And I'm not joking here or exaggerating. I literally know three people who threw him out. They are not happy (laughs) Uh, about that. Um, But um, Apple, I think, has to be – I'll I'll get to to Margaret in a moment – but Apple has to be understood as – uh, being in the right place at the right time, led by the right person, as difficult as uh, that right person was and in, in other respects. I don't think we can take anything away from him. Um, to put that in a little bit of perspective, in that period, 76, 77, 78, I can think of about a dozen companies that were competing to bring a personal computer to the to the market, to the consumer market. You have never heard of 11 of those 12, and mm-hmm. the 12th is now a trillion-dollar company and, at any given week, the most valuable company in the world. So um, th- when uh, a company has a profile of that state- stature and defines itself as being design-driven, uh, then every other company in the world is going to take notice 
at their or ignore it at their peril. So the importance of, of Apple, not just in creating you know new generations of innovative products and all of that, which is a, a cliche, the importance of Apple for um, giving priority to design at the executive level, that's pretty new in American corporate history. Not entirely unprecedented, but at that scale, it, it was just a new phenomenon. And what I would say about Apple in terms of its importance for the story that you are trying to get at, Dan, is um, once it became clear that uh, a high-quality experience was going to be essential to making this new generation of tech products successful, uh, Steve began to explore design talent around the world. And there were plenty of American designers who were a bit miffed by this, but he conducted his search in the UK, in Germany, as you said, Frog, uh, the company that became Frog, uh, the star designers in Italy, and uh, and in Paris. And he narrowed it down through uh, what, a, a competition that became known as the Snow White competition to design a personal computer, Snow White, and seven peripherals, the seven dwarfs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that competition was ultimately won by the small firm that you referred to and that you used to work for, um, Esslinger Design in the Federal Republic of Germany, F-O-F-R-O-G. Uh, and the condition that uh, Jobs imposed upon it was that they moved to Silicon Valley and at least establish uh, an outpost here. So Hartmut Esslinger moved Esslinger Design to Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. It became Frog Design. And the larger importance of that, I think, is that it was really uh, Apple that began to engage this small community of tech-oriented design professionals who are starting to spill out of Stanford, arriving from uh, London and Germany and a few other places. And that would ultimately give rise, <coughs> excuse me, uh, to the major consultancies, which became the defining identity of Silicon Valley design. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that you know, the company that became IDEO, the company that became Frog, Lunar, um, and um, now a, then a second and a third and now a fourth generation uh, of companies that are, are at this point almost beyond counting. I, uh, it, you know, I find this to be so fascinating, that whole – the evolution of the whole design industry in the Bay Area in, in that regard, starting at that moment, that that transcendent moment in the in the early 80s where it, it just came alive suddenly. Yeah. Um, I remember – Prior to joining Frog, so, you know, even though I had talked to Hartman about about him meeting jobs and being a part of this Snow White program, I was aware of it. I, I had gone to Dreyfus in New York City in the meantime. And when I was there, I saw the first Snow White examples coming out, of course. And I saw on the back page of ID Magazine yeah. the Apple IIc. It was that particular design that made me think something is going on here. Mm-hmm. I really should be a part of this. Yeah. And that's when I reached back out to Hartman. He basically said, Hey man, where have you been? Come on, let's, you know, come out to California yep. right away. If I could 
If I could jump in and just add one more uh, gloss onto this whole thing, and that is there's an old story of companies hiring designers to improve their products. That's sort of the the history of design in, in this country, and it's a great history. What happens very rarely is designers being the opportunity, being given the opportunity to design not just a new product, but a new product category and to create a language for it and to figure out what is this thing all about. So if you were asked to improve last year's toaster uh, and, you know, give us next year's toaster, you look back at last year and the year before and the year before mm-hmm. that there is a language of toasters and you run with it. But if you were asked to um, uh, design a mouse, uh, the patent uh, for the, for the mouse um, was it was called the XY position indicator. So somebody walks in and asks you to de- design an XY position indicator for you know, where do you start? That you you don't look at last year's model because there was no last year's model, or a modem, or even like a digital answering machine or something like that. They are entirely new product categories, and the opportunity to do that does not come very often. And what really defined the design profession, I think, in Silicon Valley, argue with me if you like, is this ongoing challenge to designers of giving form and language to entirely new product categories. Yes. Um, In addition, giving a giving an identity and a personality to something that otherwise is purely represented by the software that you might see on the screen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's really, um, it's true conception, if you will, you know, it's like, okay, well, it's blue sky design. You have to, you know, you you sit there sometimes to scratch your head, like, well, how can I rep? And I do, I do this now, you know, like mm-hmm. how can I represent this very unusual abstract technology that, you know, it takes even my design team, it might take months to figure out even how some of this stuff works. I mean, we're doing like yeah. uh, CRISPR technologies and yeah. uh, human genome sequencing. And I think that that's another thing about the Bay Area. You get exposed as a designer to some remarkable innovation and you're asked to to give it a face, give yep. it, give it um, an identity and make that identity, by the way, approachable, friendly, sometimes warm, um, almost always intuitive, um, and make it exciting enough that it makes an impact on demand for the product. Mm-hmm. At, at its best, design does that. But yeah, you're right. I mean, especially, um, you know, using Apple again as that um, example, and even other companies picked up on that. You know, the car sure. companies saw what Apple did with a line of products whereby each individual product was making a suggestion about its values and that other siblings in the product line also had those values. Yes. Which builds trust because you will automatically assume if the quality is imbued in the product that I currently have in my hand or sitting on the desk in front of me, I make the assumption that the company that is offering me that is also making other fine products. Mm-hmm. And that notion hadn't really been expressed in a manner that was so 
clear as far as like, especially sibling likenesses and languages, you know, yeah. car companies were making an individual, you'd, you'd see a Camaro and then you'd see a, a, um, a Mustang and they were all very, very different. Even companies, you know, looking at, you know, Ford, they would, all of their cars look very, very different. There was no such thing as a design language. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would say that uh, one of the roots of Bay Area design was just that, giving a, a broader expression of what um, a complex system might might look like and how it yeah. should work. Yeah. What else was it about what designers were doing, in your opinion, around that time and even up into the 90s and even now that makes Silicon Valley special? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the key thing, Dan, is um, in the kind of popular imagination, Silicon Valley is a whole lot of tech companies. So as you read about, you know, the uh, the, the war between Washington and Silicon Valley now, um, or Europe and Silicon Valley over issues of privacy and data sequestering and all of that, uh, the kind of unspoken assumption is that Silicon Valley is a vast agglomeration of high-tech companies. In fact, um, I think it is much more accurate and meaningful to understand it as an extremely complex ecosystem. In some, I know that's a sort of a cliche term, but in something like the biological sense, in which an ecosystem operates as a series of inter- interdependent components, each of which influences the other. And the interest that I have, and I think you have here, is how design became an integral part of that ecosystem. So when I think ecosystem, I think, sure, the tech companies, Apple, Facebook, Hewlett-Packard, Lockheed, um, uh, NVIDIA, uh, and all of the others that are household names. Um, But we also need to think about the venture capital industry that feeds money into it. about half of the VC investment in the United States in any given quarter is invested in this little piece of real estate where we have the mm-hmm. either good luck or misfortune to live, depending mm-hmm. on whether you own your That's house true. or not. Um, a legal infrastructure. So firms um, began to uh, develop an expertise in an aspect of corporate law that had to do with funding and setting up startup companies uh, on the basis of, um, you might have heard the phrase, opium addicts, uh, an addiction to other people's money. Um, uh, so IP law protection, um, uh, 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 early stage corporate law, um, the universities. So we have Stanford, Berkeley, and then a, as the major research institutions, but then places like San Jose State, which is um, not sufficiently recognized as a factor, but the mission of the state universities in California is to serve the local population, local companies, and to provide educational opportunities for local people, which is not what Berkeley or Stanford are about right. by, by definition. So uh, uh, San Jose State and a few others began to uh, contribute talent into um, the tech community, design talent as well as engineering talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, places like CCA where I teach an art school uh, and half a dozen other specialized arts in- institutions in the region. So you've got um, uh, the tech companies, academia, the legal infrastructure, the 
financial infrastructure. And then the piece that was missing in all of that is design. Mm -hmm. And when Apple in particular, and then a growing number of other companies began to make serious investments into building design into their operations, hiring um, this gaggle of Stanford graduates that became IDEO, hiring uh, this agglomeration of European designers showing up at Frog, um, uh, hiring these uh, peculiar mix of engineers and designers at Lunar, um, we begin to see the formation of a professional design consultancy world that became an integral piece of the Silicon, and I would say a defining piece of the Silicon Valley ecosystem. Uh, and that is, um, uh, I think, of inestimable importance in understanding how Silicon Valley worked. Because it's not, it's not simply about laboratory science or bench engineering. It's about making products that are accessible, interesting, affordable, uh, and exciting. And that, again, is um, where design has its specific value to add. Why is it that the public doesn't seem to really understand that? When you think about Silicon Valley, you, do, you think about technology, you think about software, you think about invention and innovation by companies like Facebook, Google, of course, Apple, and many, many others, all these different startups. But it's often design that, that is is the vehicle. It's carrying these messages forward, the values, the yeah. experience that is making this so wonderful. Whether you're looking at the UX of a Google product or even products, you know, like, uh, oh my gosh, almost any medical device, uh, scientific mm -hmm. equipment, fitness equipment, mm -hmm. um, computing, um, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Yeah. Why? Do we, we are more, more commonly aware of design when it fails, when it's bad, when something doesn't work the way you want it to, mm -hmm. whether it's the chair that you're sitting on or, um, the microphone that you're speaking into, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, uh, most people, including the person you're talking to right now, has very little idea of how computer works. Um, you know, I've read books about it, but, um, and we sort of don't care. Um, and I mean that uh, in in actually a pretty serious way. Um, people love to compare their phones, but more often, you know, they're they're actually people will spend more time choosing the case of I their know, mobile so phone. Funny? than deciding between, you know, models. Um, uh, and I don't mean that in a trivial sense. What I'm trying to get at is the idea that we are coming to understand that um, uh, the technology is now pretty dependable. It's extraordinary. I mean, I, I have a little Miata, okay, the mm -hmm. Mazda sports car. Um, the um, idea that... Um, and I drove it for 18 years, and in 18 years, I repaired the, I replaced the radiator. That was the only significant repair wow. I ever did wow. on that car. And the idea, some uh, generation before that, that your sports car would not spend half of its adult life in the shop. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking. So the technology, the point I'm making, is the technologies are very dependable now, and they're also inscrutable. And we kind of don't want to know what's under the hood or behind the screen or beneath the keyboard. We want to know um, what it's doing that is relevant to the task that I am now trying to perform. 
Uh, so, do you think uh, that's that, one reason why design has become a household name? Is because yes. the yeah, technology was, maybe in the past we talked about design so much uh, history of technology, the introduction of the technology, the absorption, and the issues that we all had with technology as that became a little bit more resolved and design became more well revolutionary and evolutionary at the same time. It's yep. it's now something that we we can relate to and therefore we talk about because yeah. everything else is the technology is working and uh, it it should be emphasized uh, no disrespect is intended toward engineers hardware or software engineers quite to the contrary if they hadn't done such a damn good job of building reliable efficient and ever faster cheaper and smaller products then we wouldn't be focusing on this experiential level and the human level. Um, so it's their credit uh, to their credit that um, uh, designers have moved into a position of increasing prominence. And this is pretty new and it's still happening. It is a work in progress. Um, but, um, uh, you know, when I started teaching, I, I would hear from my uh, students from alumni of my courses who went to work in tech companies again and again and again. The engineers won't listen to us. They won't take us seriously. They won't um, give us the time of day. Mm -hmm. They'll hand us something once all of the key decisions have been made. And, you know, that phrase that you probably heard way back when, make it pretty, put it in a yeah, box um, yeah. and yeah. all that. Uh, yeah. Um, and that's just no longer really the case. Um, yeah, I, there's still a lot of uncertainty about what designers do and how they do it and why they make the decisions they make. But uh, I remember a conversation with Doreen Lorenzo, who was uh, the CEO of Frog after Hartmut Esslinger stepped down, in which she said, um, uh, "Design a design strategy is now as important as a business plan. Mm-hmm. And most companies, whether it's because Apple hit the trillion-dollar mark or um, for whatever reason, most companies now recognize that uh, designers need a seat at the table earlier on in the process than you know at the um, at the end of the day. If I can use an image that that really appeals to me, I had a conversation with um, um, the chief designer at Tesla, Franz von Holzhausen. And I asked him what was different about being a designer at Tesla, the chief designer, chief product officer, in fact, and uh, and his previous jobs. He worked, I think, at uh, Chrysler before that. And But what he said to me is that uh, the typical pattern in the auto industry had been that design was a link in a chain, an important link. And, you know, a chain doesn't work if one link is broken. Mm-hmm. But it was a link in a chain that connected R&D to engineering to design style uh, to marketing, figure out how to sell it. And what he told me was, at Tesla, we are not a link in a chain. It's more like the hub of a wheel. We are present at the beginning of any discussion about at the highest level of the product definition. And it's really our job, like the hub of a wheel. Think of the spokes connecting the aeronautical engineers who are concerned about the airflow over the hood, the mechanical engineers who are working on drivetrain, the electrical engineers that are working on the Panasonic battery pack, uh, marketing, 
And it's actually design that is connecting all of those parts mm -hmm. from the beginning of the, uh, the, the development process to the end of it. And that is something that is pretty new in the auto industry and has had an impact um, uh, because of the extraordinary success of Tesla uh, throughout the industry. And it's also a pattern that I think you can see in other industries as well. I, you know, I, from as a consultant, um, I, I've seen this pattern evolving and taking shape over the last, especially the last 10 years, you know, where yeah. the designers have, are sitting right up there with, you know, the CEO, the operations, um, yeah. marketing, engineering, of course. I think because they realize that because design is kind of the, uh, the, the binding element between all of these departments, you know, because design just, it infiltrates your marketing, your messaging, certainly the engineering and the production and all the way right down to supply chain management. We're, we're I think the enlightened companies had figured this out. And mm -hmm. part of that is because they realize that, that the consumer is actually making decisions based on what's right for them, what mm -hmm. they can identify with. How is addressing my particular problem and design has has just become it's it's the communication tool for it for the company to bring mm -hmm. forth those messages the beliefs mm -hmm. that they actually build into their yeah. products hopefully it's good to hear that the car companies are coming around they've been a little bit slower mm -hmm. at this partly because the mm -hmm. time frame to develop a car so it, you know it would typically yeah. go from r and d and and safety concerns to engineering and then ultimately the styling department and then tooling. It just takes a long time to develop five, five years so, minimum. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're designing and developing these consumer electronics or computing products or even scientific goods, like, like we do, um, it's the consumption pattern. It's, it's very fast. Yeah. So design <clears throat> really, I think it has to have a seat at the table early on for the whole process mm -hmm. to work. Mm hmm. Which raises an interesting question that will be very relevant to you and your line of work, and that is the relation between the internal design groups within companies, which are having growing prominence, and external consultants, such as Whipsaw. Um, and there has been some speculation in uh, the pages of Fast Company and a few other magazines mm -hmm. that the consultancies may be a victim of their own success in making the case that design is important. So uh, companies, healthcare, automotive, consumer electronics, food and beverage, everything, have heard the message and are building their own internal design teams. Um, and I, I, you know, I keep hearing about this and, you know, people have asked me, is this a threat or something, mm -hmm. you know, to the existence of, you know, and it becomes like an existential question. I think it's all nonsense. Um, uh -huh. You know, a rising tide raises all the ships and, you know, great. Corporations are hiring more designers. They're also hiring more consultants. Mm -hmm. um, we are seeing a lot of consulting firms, especially in the Bay Area, being bought out. Yeah. All and, of them. Yeah. And, you know, we're one of the remaining private ones. Sometimes these firms lose their their identity or their their verve, their passion. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, what happens when you get absorbed in a big corporation like that? No. Um, but individuals that have a vision that that want to 
be independent, there's still room for for those kinds of consultants too. I mean, we, we're seeing sure. an increase in business, not a decrease. Yeah. yeah. I just love the fact that almost every company that even the startups, some of the first people that they hire are designers. Yeah. UX, ID, graphic design, identity, branding. It's so essential. And it's if you don't, it's just a huge missed opportunity. Like yeah. why wouldn't you? If it if it will more likely make you successful, why in the world wouldn't you? Yeah. When I started uh, working on my book on Silicon Valley design, make it new, I began with uh, an approach that any responsible author would take. Okay, this is a book about Silicon Valley design. Define Silicon Valley and define design, and I couldn't do it. Um, you know, Silicon Valley is a state of mind that extends from Lucas Ranch, north of the Golden Gate Bridge, to the Santa Cruz Mountains. And design, I mean, there are um, designers that work on um, intricate internal mechanisms of surgical robots, and there are designers that work on the aspirational lifestyle experience mm-hmm. of um, uh, preteens. And right everything in between. So I made the decision in that work to stop trying to define it in advance and then fill in the pieces, but rather simply look at what people are doing and allow a definition both of the region and of the professional practice to emerge out of that. That That is intended to endorse what you just said about the consultancies versus the internal corporate groups versus the one-person studio and the boutique group. Um, it, it's an extraordinary range. And the other piece of that that I'm finding uh, breathtakingly interesting is not just the proliferation of different ways of being a designer. You use the term existential there. I like it. But also an expanding perimeter around the types of problems that designers are being called upon or demanding a right to participate in the, these, um, the, the famous wicked problems, um, uh, which are no longer, you know, that brings me, sorry to interrupt, but that brings me to the whole trend of design thinking and the fact that so much of that started in the Silicon Valley and that will most certainly be one of the legacies of our time. Right. And, you know, I think that idea really pushed that forward, even though I I think most designers like myself would even say, well, what do you mean design thinking? To me, when I started hearing about design thinking theory, I was like, well, wait a minute, we've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. So um, what's your perspective on that? And is that one of the legacies of the Silicon Valley design thinking? Yeah, I, I think it absolutely is. Uh, uh, another book that I worked on with Tim Brown, who is the former CEO of IDEO, is called um, Change by Design. And it um, I, I have to say it really introduced the idea of design thinking to the business community uh, in a big way about 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, we just did a 10th anniversary edition of it. Um, design thinking is widely maligned. It is widely misunderstood. And it is um, um, the fault for that lies mostly with its own practitioners, I think, more than with its Mm. slander from the outside. Do tell. 
So if you look up design thinking, I sometimes do this little exercise in workshops of asking people to do a Google image search for design thinking. And what you'll see is this blaze of little diagrams with hexagons or circles or recursive loops or triangles. It's much more complicated than any electrical engineering drawing of a circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's um, very unfortunate because they tend to try to reduce it to a methodology. Uh, a fi- I, I say it's, it's something like uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an 11-step process, and at the end of it, you're clean. You know, you turn the crank, <laughs> yeah. you do some prototyping, some brainstorming, some user observations, some whatever. You turn the crank five times, and, and you get an And all eye. of our clients that ask for it expect something to pop out of the other end. Yeah, Just somebody like an extrusion process, and then boom, there's your solution, and it will be successful because we use this design thinking process. Somebody at IDEO told me that a client walked in and said, I want you to give me the iPod of meat. <laughs> um, so the way I prefer to think about design thinking is uh, not as a methodology, but as a philosophy, as a way of thinking about problems. And I will often reduce it to two pretty simple formulations. The first is um, that there is no problem that cannot be thought about as a design problem. Uh, And I mean that quite seriously. You know, you're having problems with your kids. How would a designer think about this problem? Because at the end of it or behind it, um, uh, there are strategic decisions being made that you might not even be aware that you're making. And perhaps you should revisit those in a way that a designer might revisit um, why a product is not successful in the market or why it's not um, functioning the way everybody expected to or why people are using it in completely different ways than was intended. So my, you know, when my 90-year-old mother used to wrap a dish towel around the handle of her refrigerator because it was a lot easier for her to pull the dish towel than to get her arthritic fingers behind this beautifully designed chromium-plated door <laughs> handle that some jerk at, you know, wherever uh, thought looked cool. Uh, that's an unintended use, and uh, it causes, it, it will hopefully provoke a designer into rethinking why something is not used correctly, whatever correct means. The other piece of it, if uh, piece number one is there's no problem that cannot be approached as a design problem. By the way, to interject, I think that design, because it's you know at the fundamental level, design is about solving a problem. Yeah. And one could even say that life is basically a string of problems that need to be solved. We go about yeah. this every single day. Almost every move you make, you're trying to solve a little micro problem. You might not even consider it to be a problem. But if you step back... And look at things quite openly the way you just described. Yeah, almost anything can be can be solved. Well, you might not get to a solution, but you can use a process to help you get closer to a solution. And it's a big mess because there is almost, if it's a serious problem, a problem really worth spending your time on, there is not going to be one right answer to it. There will be multiple yeah. possibilities and there will be unanticipated impacts. I, I often... Um, uh, demand of my students that they learn to think in an anticipatory way to solve not just the problem that's in front of you, but solve the problem that will be created by your solution. That's right. So Hen- that's Henry right. F- Henry Ford solved the problem of internal combustion. 
I think he also should have solved the problem of traffic jams and parking tickets. <laughs> what would it have looked like if he had thought beyond mm. the problem in front of him to the problems that would be created by his solution? And right now, the stakes of a mistake are so catastrophically high. I mean, we are changing the climate of planet Earth. Think about that. Yeah. Uh, the stakes are simply too high not to be thinking that way. Yeah, And that leads me, if I may, to the second piece of my reformulation of design thinking. If the first piece of it is there's no problem that can't be addressed as a design problem, the second is you don't have to be a designer to think like one. And that does not take one bit away from the mastery that professional designers such as yourself have acquired in the trenches and with the battle mm-hmm. scars to prove it. Mm-hmm. It simply means that, um, uh, well, not simply, but it means a number of things. One of which is you as a lawyer, as a physician, as a primary school teacher can learn to practice some of those skills and learn when to hire a professional and to work with that professional in ways that might not previously have been possible or even imaginable. So um, that's really what I think is at stake in design thinking. Yeah. I like that it has really kind of opened up the minds of a lot of, especially like marketing teams within corporations and clients of ours. Sometimes it's almost like a little too much awareness that they have acquired where they're like, well, wait a minute, we can do what you do too now. I'm hearing a lot of that. Like, oh, I took a design thinking course, so uh, we want to come in and brainstorm with you, and our ideas are as good as yours. Yeah. Rarely is that the case. But, you know, we're always open. It should be a a process whereby there's lots of collaboration and respect and all that. But there's a massive lack of knowledge, you know, in most cases. So how can we reconcile that? How can we have these these highly aware, thoughtful clients, but still giving them the the type of advice and consulting yeah. and education that they so desperately need? Well, it's a big question, obviously. Um, I mean, look, I, I brush my teeth twice a day, and I still go to the dentist when I need to go to the dentist. <laughs> and I would not think of um, uh, putting a crown on a wisdom tooth by myself or doing a, a root canal. Crazy. But that does not mean that I should not take some responsibility for my own dental hygiene. And if I were uh, a corporate executive, take some responsibility for my design hygiene. And that does not mean I have to be one. It means I have to know what they do, designers, um, how to work with them, how to smooth out tensions among various business units, functional or geographical or whatever, um, so that uh, designers are working effectively with marketing teams, with engineering teams, with product teams, and all of the rest. And that is part of, um, I never really uh, thought of using the term design hygiene before, but it popped into my mind. Um, Yeah, yeah, I I think think it works. The key is it, it puts the onus back on the designer to help guide that process. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Because with this this new awareness about design thinking, I can tell you once a week, I have to tell a client, put the drill down, step away from the chair. We got this. Yeah. Um, I, they, I, it's, this is a new trend. 
yeah. where clients suddenly know how to design their own products. And of course, mm-hmm. they they usually don't, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But I like the fact that they at least are trying sure. <laughs> because they soon realize because they have an interest in it and they're they're now attuned to it that they can see that that sometimes the pains that we have to go through to solve a problem this is yep. not easy it's design is a difficult profession what mm-hmm. you have to go through to find your solution to test it to evaluate it to to be brave enough to say you know what all the assumptions that we made in the last two or three months are wrong mm-hmm. we have to start over mm-hmm. it takes guts yeah time money and and all of the rest and the way to do it is, you know, it's, it's not, um, you know, take a three-day design thinking workshop, learn the methodology, and then uh, allocate a space full of whiteboards and Sharpies to uh, your new crop of design-educated uh, yeah. employees. Because, um, you know, I, I, I've so often uh, gone back to companies that have done this, and, you know, they're sitting around in their allocated, dedicated space, and scratching their heads and saying, can somebody remind us what we're supposed to be doing? Um, yeah, right. So uh, it's, I, I'm it's super a slog. interested in, in, it is a slog. And, but I'm really interested in how we're going to evolve this thing called design thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like the fact that we have opened it up. The, the whole process has become much more collaborative. Your client feels like they are part of a process yeah. now. But I think we need to we need to flesh it out more. We need to give it more body. We need to give it more means of expression. And to it needs to be jolted out of these stereotypes about, about what design thinking is. Mm-hmm. Um, one technique that I've been using with clients is I'll say, let's talk about design seeing. And that kind of stops them in their tracks right away. And when nice. you realize that seeing is so far beyond what looking at something it's about observation it's about perception it's about adopting a new way of thinking and feeling about something i find that we're able to get to the heart of a matter even a little faster when you again introduce this a new concept about how to solve a problem and whatever your method is as a designer or a team that's really what the objective is Mm. is to take something to a new level a new place explore and i mean that to me was is real definition of innovation where you're going somewhere new it's just you know a new frontier it's hard to get to it there's no secret methodology we're all a little bit different i think to be able to recognize it as a team when you are on the cusp of something that's when the the real joy of this whole design process to me uh, becomes um I, i just yeah. so much more exposed. That's uh, um, uh, really nice. George Nelson, who's one of, uh, as you know, one of the real pioneers of American design and um, uh, as at the helm of the Herman Miller Company, one of the great design-driven companies in the U.S. I know it well. I worked um, with George. Yeah. Uh, he, <laughs> uh, he wrote a book. Um, I've forgotten the exact title, but it's Design as Seeing or Design as a Way of Seeing or How to See Like a Designer or something like this. Mm-hmm. And he was very much um, interested, as he was in that period decades ago, in the visual, you know, what a designer sees when he or she walks down the street or enters into a grocery store. And I think that what you're getting at now is that it's more than simply the optic nerve being stimulated. Mm-hmm. Um but um, seeing possibilities 
and that's just yes. seeing forms, seeing um, opportunities, uh, uh, seeing uh, uh, really seeing beyond the present. And I would like to think that companies that hire designers are hiring. Uh, sure, they're hiring a set of skills. They're hiring a body of experience, but they're also hiring somebody who will think differently than than they do. Yeah, I think that's and think the key. beyond the the status quo in which they're operating, and it involves a risk. I mean, it's a money risk, it's a time risk, it's a I personnel think risk. That comes to the heart of what consulting is all about. To to be able to go to an outside source to get a different perspective, a new way of seeing something. And that oftentimes just shakes one's reality in a way that makes them think, okay, there is a different possibility. So absolutely moving beyond design thinking and even introducing other forms of how you, how you, how you go through this, this very difficult process of, of taking something from a nothing to a something. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk, let's talk about like, what if, how have designers added value in this whole Silicon Valley story. I mean, in a way, I kind of feel like the Silicon Valley, we're living in a renaissance period, right? Mm-hmm. Technology, the, the birth of different technologies, and then giving technology the uh, um, an expression. I think you, one could say that's one of the legacies of designers, you know, in the Silicon Valley. But where do you see, like, where where have we made these biggest contributions? Mm-hmm. Is it yeah. is it humanizing the technology? Is it is it is it giving it the kind of warmth and the friendliness that everyone seems to crave? I remember when our mutual friend, the late Stephen Holt, uh, used to um, to tell us, um, uh, "It's the Renaissance, and they're handing out the marble. <laughs> Get in line." <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that what's happening is. Um, uh, and again, it's part of a historical uh, process, um, and I don't want to get too deep into uh, into history, which is more interesting to me than it is to most other humans. But uh, what has been happening, of course, in the world of technology pioneered in Silicon Valley, let's face it, is uh, it's Moore's Law in action. Products have been getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Processing speeds have become faster and faster and faster. Um, the idea that you could be sitting with a computer on your desktop was unimaginable in 1980. That you could be holding it in your hand or resting it on your lap in 1990. That you could be wearing it on your wrist in 2000. That you could be... Um, uh, having um, uh, computer processing power worn in the form factor of a wedding ring or the next stage I'm pretty sure is going to be implantable um, as a consumer product. What does all this mean? Um, You and I are both old enough to remember when email was introduced, right? So the first generation of email, it was horrible and it was wonderful. It was wonderful because I could communicate with my friends in Israel or China or or Brazil at any hour of the day or night to leave them, you know, to respond whenever it was convenient to them and so on and so forth. It was horrible because you dialed it up on a screeching modem. It crashed. And I mean, the experience was thoroughly unpleasant. Oh, yes. But, you know, we, we didn't care because it was so new and so exciting. 
Yep. But then as it became increasingly um, pervasive, oh, and one other thing, how often did we check our email in that first generation? For me, it was twice a day. Yeah. Once in the morning when I got up, once right. in the evening, yeah, at night before I went to yeah. bed. Yeah. And now, you know, according to Google Analytics, I think it's something like 50 times a day, unless mm-hmm. you're in China, in which case it's 24 hours seamless. Yep. Um, and when an experience is becomes closer and closer to your physical body, because it's so small and light and cheap, and it's integrated into the rhythm of your day, not when you wake up and when you go to bed, but both of those and everything in between. Mm-hmm. And maybe, as in the uh, the sense of my new Google um, uh, home monitor, even while I'm sleeping, that's monitoring my sleep patterns to help me sleep better. Um, <laughs> right. When something is uh, as close to the body and as, as deeply integrated into the rhythms of your everyday life, um, the designed experience becomes absolutely the key defining factor. And so with all the technology in the world, the Kindle, the home monitors that we're seeing from Amazon and Apple, the autonomous vehicle, they would not have any future whatsoever if we didn't have the, um, uh, the experience of delight, of confidence, of security, uh, of all of those emotional states that design can bring to a product. And I think that that is the trajectory that we are seeing um, coming out of Silicon Valley. And I need to emphasize, obviously, um, there are important design centers throughout the world. Uh, we are not alone. Uh, but I don't think we've seen the cluster and the ecosystem that I described earlier anywhere else. And I find on this particular matter, um, we are being asked to design the end user's emotional state. It's exactly what you were just talking about. And when you realize that you, you have the capability of doing that, if you're able to uh, manipulate software factors, manipulate Mm -hmm. form factors, uh, presenting levels of functionality and performance at just the right time in the in the experience in the consumption of that experience, and that at the end of the day is is what good design does. It, I think it makes you more empathic, uh, more responsible, definitely more compassionate to the end user's state of mind. You start and- to consider things like feelings and. It's it's not it's not the old definition of design anymore, where we're yeah. like you know form and function and give, making products beautiful. I mean, sure, beauty has a lot to do with invoking these and provoking even emotions, uh, but it's so much more than that now. And I do think that that is probably the lasting legacy of this time period, this Renaissance that we're in in the Bay Area. And I think that's what. Silicon Valley designers, not only here, you know, but, you know, in a lot of parts of the world, especially in the areas where they're they're incorporating software and hardware and and development smarts, there's a lot of great work being done in Asia um, in this in this area. Um, The other thing that is a piece of what you're saying, Dan, is um, uh, that I think is is relatively new is. You guys, by which I mean designers, um, have begun to acquire a degree of humility, which is somewhat unfamiliar 
in what has been a very ego-driven kind of macho design world. I mean, we used to have the stars of design, and, you you know, we can name them, and they are Henry Dreyfus and Raymond Lowy and Teague and Bill Gettys and those, those heroes, and then all the way forward. And I think we are increasingly recognizing that the designer is not the last word, the last stage in the story. It's me as the user. So I, I think about, you know, the iconic example of your mobile phone. It's handed to me by Sir Johnny Ive. Barry, I've just designed this cool, cool thing. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm really the one that completes the design because as soon as I get it, I begin to configure it. And within a day, within an hour, within a minute, my phone is unlike any other phone in the world because of the way I've organized mm-hmm. You know, apps on the screen and settings and, you know, a thousand mm-hmm. other, a million other uh, variables. So um, you are handing over to me not a finished product any longer. You are handing over to me a world of possibilities that become mine to realize. And that's it can be a little bit of a shocker. I mean, I still um, often hear my design students um, uh, responding in a crit by saying, no, that's not what I intended. Well, I don't want to say I don't care what you intend, but that's not the whole whole picture anymore. You have to learn to step back from your intention and understand that it's not for you. Yeah, stepping back from your intention as a designer. I I think, uh, especially working with a lot of young designers that I hire, that's something that they learn because it... I don't know why in the design school they think, well, you compose this thing and then it's going to be just manufactured like that. It's going to churn out and be on the mm-hmm. shelves just like that. But there are so many unforeseen things and other contributors and stakeholders that come in to to add definition to it and hopefully goodness throughout yeah. that, that building process. But that's not always the case. And we have all learned humility as well. And if you are awake and listening and looking around in this world, you realize that, you know, designers are part of the problem, too. Oh, sure. Um, you know, sustainability values have taken a long, long time in this profession to take hold. We, we often do not consider the long chain of events and ramifications of our decisions in regards to the consumption of energy that your product will require years from now, even after it is consumed. Mm-hmm. And that humility hits you pretty hard when you, like, see your products in the dump. Yeah. I have, I have seen products that I have designed in a dump, in a, in a dumpster in a recycling center. I've seen this several times. Yeah. yeah. I saw an exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art down in San Jose, and they, everyone brought in all of the products that they have discarded and found in their garage and made a giant pile <laughs> and I'm looking through this pile, oh boy. and I and I was like, "Oh my God!" There's a Sun Microsystems computer that I designed in yeah. 1994. You should there's, march your employees through that. I, and exactly. You exactly. right behind you will be me and my students. <laughs> yeah, I, I found a Motorola phone that I had designed. Mm-hmm. I found a toaster that I had designed for Sunbeam. Mm-hmm. And it, talk about humility! Mm-hmm. You know, it really does make you think. And I, coming back to the Bay Area, I think the humility has exposed itself 
in a in one very special way, and this is the this a newer understanding about about what does it really take to offer you a product that is providing some kind of value to you? Mm-hmm. Does it have to be some big clunky thing with all these different features? Sometimes no. Oftentimes no. Give me one or two features. That's all I need. So you're starting to see, well, you know, several years ago, minimalism is suddenly reemerging. You know, of course, yeah. this was done in the Bauhaus a long time ago. And young designers think, oh, this is all new, this minimalism. But this general belief that reductionism is good yeah. is, is actually helping the sustainability cause. Mm-hmm. You know, less material, um, more performance from fewer functions. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of, it, it seems to me like a lot of those values have been born here. In, in the Bay Area, not not exclusively for yeah. sure, but it's definitely a value. Do you see that? Uh, yeah, and as as um, I say, this new product categories emerge. Um, fitness monitors is a good example, um, which has um, a deeply rooted history in the Bay Area. Um, I I am, as you may know, a long distance runner, and I went crazy uh, last time I tried to buy a watch, a fitness watch, mm-hmm. because I wanted a watch that would do four things. It would tell me what time it is, how fast I'm running, how far I'm running, and at what pace I'm running. Mm-hmm. And But it gave you 40. 40, 400. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I didn't want a heart monitor. I didn't need it. You know, if I have a heart attack, I will know I'm having a heart attack. Thank <laughs> you very much. Uh, I didn't want a garage door opener. I didn't want something that would fend off my enemies with a shriek or a mace mm-hmm. spray or something. I wanted four function. Almost impossible to find something that, um, you know, because of the magic of um, programmable chips that uh, that wouldn't do everything for me. And so most of us are now walking around with products. My watch is an example. My camera is an example that do so much more than I will ever even know about, much less be able to deal with. Um, Can I share a little story with you um, that your listeners may find amusing? Years ago, uh, close to the beginning of my teaching career, I was... um, uh, teaching a design seminar that was very multi, it was theory and history. So the students were from every design discipline in the college. And somehow um, uh, it came up, a student um, told a story in class. She was a graphic design student. And she said that she had the habit when she came home from the grocery store of taking everything out of the original packaging and putting it into its own canisters her own ceramic or her own, you know, decorated tin or whatever, because she hated opening her uh, kitchen cabinet doors and seeing this blast of advertising coming at her. So she Mm -hmm. customized. And she really liked this until she started being a graphic design student and realized every time she did this, she was discarding the work of a fellow graphic designer. And it made her feel really sad. And she said, I'm starting to think maybe I should change my major to industrial design because at least their products have a lasting power, in which all of the industrial design students (laughs) 
shrieked in or have you ever been to a landfill? Have you ever been mm-hmm. to a recycling center? And one guy said, and, and I'm sort of thinking, I wish I had um, done the architecture program instead of ID, because at least their products are permanent. Uh, and the yeah, architecture so students <laughs> fell on the floor um, in, in agony and, you know, talked about the, uh, the beautiful um, – um, office building that they had done that was repurposed as a spa mm-hmm. and then and then the owners did this weird thing to it and you know, one architect uh, architecture student finally concluded I'm sort of thinking about switching to graphic design because at least they have no pretension <laughs> at permanence and the circle was complete <laughs> yeah so um, I can't solve this problem um, obviously you're closer to being able to than I am and you can't solve the problem Um but um, I think we just have to keep being human, and that is to be human is to create. And, and but to take a greater is to take a yeah. greater degree of responsibility for what we create. Absolutely, and that's where I was going with that is just think about what you're doing and realize you're not going to solve everything right now. You're not going to be able to put the whole picture together. It's civilization is built, you know, one brick at a time, and. Make a contribution, make it as, you know, as thoughtful as you can, be responsible, think about the impact that it has um, on so many other other elements of the infrastructure and just be smart about what you're doing. And it's really impossible to do that thoroughly. I mean, this whole concept of wicked problems that uh, uh, began to emerge in, in 1972, actually, when the famous essay was written, um, it's all about how um, the easy problems have been pretty much taken care of. We can do a hinge on a laptop mm-hmm. and, you know, somebody will do it better than somebody else and it will be improved over time. But that's a pretty simple problem to, to yeah. solve if you've got the mechanical chops. Um, a piece of playground equipment is more complicated. Um, the experience of flying cross-country is way more complicated and yes, outward uh, addressing the uh, the problem of pediatric obesity in the United States or unwanted teen pregnancy in West Africa. Those mm-hmm. are not problems that have a correct answer and an incorrect answer. Just choose one. They are open-ended, multifaceted, um, and, you know, in a, in a certain sense, insoluble. You can do better or you can do worse but you're never going to get it right. And you just have to be prepared to admit that and think as hard as you can about what could go wrong. Uh, you know, an example that I'm thinking a lot about now, partly because there's a new book about it, is um, Juul, the the vaping phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So yes. these two guys, uh, graduate students at Stanford, I am willing to say that they started out with the best of intentions. They were smokers who were thinking about how to cut their smoking addiction and delivering the addictive nicotine in a way that was not combustible, combustible tobacco. And this is very controversial, of course, and um, how what may or may not have been a well-intentioned master's thesis project turned into, I think, a $21 billion empire for the tobacco industry Mm. is a pretty sordid story of at best, how good intentions can go awry and right. uh, turn into this um, 
a highly addictive product that has hooked a generation of middle schoolers on oh mid-flavored vaping yeah. and, and all of that. So could they have predicted it? Should they have predicted it? Um, uh, I actually don't have an easy answer to that, except to say that it's the kind of an object lesson that I think we all mm-hmm. need to be thinking about. What will a world look like in which cars don't have drivers? What will a world look like in which... Um, um, psychiatry is performed by uh, uh, an intelligent system, by an AI. Mm-hmm. Um, what will the world look like? Dot, dot, dot. So more and more, what I would say, Dan, is designers have to be thinking not just of the consequences of failure. You know, what happens if you fail? That client doesn't come back. Maybe you'll get sued. <laughs> right. Okay. Think about the consequences of success. That's where the real yes. problems come in. That is Beautiful, beautiful advice. That's why I invited you on this podcast, Barry. <laughs> and I think if everyone took just that piece of advice from you, they would they would do well. Uh, Barry, I cannot thank you enough. I really enjoyed this discussion. And I can't wait to see you. The pandemic is almost over, although I keep hearing it's not quite over. Uh, but I shall see you soon, my friend. Well, Dan, I uh, thank you for adding that word friend on. That's uh, that's at the heart of it all. Uh, I always enjoy talking to you. I am thoroughly vaccinated, decontaminated, purified, exercised, <laughs> and ready to sit down with you face-to-face anytime you want. Can't wait. Thanks again, Barry. Thanks also to your whole staff for putting this together. You bet. Take see care. you. Thank you for listening to PRISM. Follow us on whipsaw.com or your favorite streaming platform. And we'll be back with more thought-provoking episodes soon. Prism is hosted by Dan Harden, Principal Designer and CEO of Whipsaw. Produced by Gabrielle Whelan and Isabella Glenn. Mix and sound design by Eric Buell.